Welcome to Transformation Thursdays with Pastor Paul. We're so excited that you could join us. And so get ready with your Bibles, your journals, your pens, and we look forward to digging deep into the Word of God. And here comes Pastor Paul. Hi, Church. I bring greetings to you in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a joy and a privilege it is for us to gather together around the Word of God and to meditate on His Word. Shall we look to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful privilege that we have in different homes that we are able to gather together and as a family study the Word of God. And even this evening, mighty God, we pray as we open the pages of Scripture that you speak to our hearts and give us a timely word, a word in season. But more than that, we want to encounter the God of the Word. So give us a grace to meet you, mighty God. And I thank you that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and give us listening ears and a heart that is willing to apply your word. In Jesus' precious name and the people of God said, Amen and Amen. Again, it is such a joy and a privilege that God has given us to be able to come into your homes and to bring the word of God. This evening, <clears throat> we're going to study the scriptures from 2 Timothy. And I'm going to title this uh, session as a Disciples Blueprint for the Last Days. We know that we are living in the last days. So how do we live our life? How do we navigate our lives? What is the internal compass that we ought to have? I think in earlier in one of my sessions I shared with you, you can navigate your life based on circumstances and you can react and respond to the circumstances. Or you can live by a clear sense of calling, a clear sense of purpose, a clear sense of destiny, and a clear sense of compass, an internal compass that navigates you. So this evening, I pray that the Word of God will become a clear map, a blueprint for us as we navigate through these last days. One of the things that I find in 2 Timothy is it's a book that I really love. Now, I love Apostle Paul. My parents named me Paul and they told me when I was young that they wanted me to serve God with passion and dedication like Paul in the Bible. And I'm thankful to the Lord that as a young man, I fell in love with him and I kept on reading most of his episodes. And as I meditate upon his episodes, I fall in love with his Savior and my Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy. Paul always points you back to Christ. And even in this episode, 2 Timothy, I'm going to do an overview with you. And it is kind of to help us to understand a disciple's blueprint for the last days. See, one of the things that I find in the world is people live from the outside in. They take their cues from what goes on outside and then they try to navigate their life. But one of the things that as a disciple-making church, we want to emphasize is that we live from the inside out. So what does it mean to live from the inside out? So don't look around for the outward calamities. You know, people get shocked about the outward calamities. And the Bible says in the last days, it will only increase. But can I humbly say this? As we look around and see the outward calamities, sometimes we forget the inward decay, the inward corruption of our own soul. So we need to take stock of our lives 
and so that we can take charge of our lives, so that we can take care of our lives. That's why we study the scriptures. And even tonight, as we open the pages of scripture from 2 Timothy, my prayer is that, that we will get a disciple's blueprint for the last days. Hallelujah. And I want to give, us, give the Lord a clap offering for giving us this opportunity to come together. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap offering. Hallelujah. <clears throat> we worship you. We thank you. We praise you, mighty God. Now, one of the beautiful things that I find in 2 Timothy is this. This is Apostle Paul's final testament. And it is his final uh, letter to his uh, beloved son in the faith. Now, Apostle Paul has wrote about 13 episodes for us in the New Testament. Now, this is a pastoral episode. This is a personal episode that he has written to his uh, beloved son in the faith. Now, this is his last one. That means he, when he wrote this episode, he was living in a dungeon in Mar Mamertine prison in Rome. And this is around AD 67. And this is the final episode and the finest episode that the apostle has penned. And I want to meditate on this in light of uh, how, what would a dying man say about his last days? Not only that, what would he say as an impartation to his spiritual son? Because if there is one person that we want to follow, the Bible says he, he himself said, follow me even as I follow Christ. Apostle Paul followed Christ wholeheartedly, gladly, only, and we want to live in a manner like that. So here's a final testament. And this is uh, during the time of Emperor Nero, when Nero um, burned down most of Rome and he kind of uh, wanted to blame it upon the Christians. So there was a com the community was uh, anti-Christ, anti-Christian. And in this moment, Paul is arrested and he's put in a prison. And this prison is not any ordinary prison. It is just a dungeon. It is just a pit. It is a dungeon. It's a huge hole on the top and they lower the person through that hole. Everything that the person is uh, fed and gave as a drink, it all is dumped through that hole. So Paul here is uh, in a prison that he doesn't deserve. He's doing the will of God, but yet he's arrested. He's put into prison and this is the final time and he knows for sure that this time he is going to die. And uh, here is a man of God who has served Christ faithfully and he is in this state. Now, as you study this uh, scripture, I want to just give you a little bit of the background of how Paul would have felt at that time, being in this prison far, far away from loved ones and in this Roman prison. And it's a, it's a dungeon. It's basically a pit. It's a dungeon. It's dark. It's uh, cold. And I want you to see how Paul would have felt. And the clues are given to us in 2 Timothy. I want to take you through the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. The pa Paul writes and he says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul knows that the end of time is near, that he is going to leave the earth and meet his Savior. And Paul knows this. And the Bible says Paul was in chains. Look at this, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16. Now, tonight I'm going to give you a lot of verses because we are going to cover the entire book of 2 Timothy. 
but I want you to take down in your journal and I want you to have a Bible in front of you so you can quickly refer to it. If not, take down notes and you can study it deeper as you go along. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul writes that he was in chains. And verse 17 of first, first chapter says this, that it was a place that was quite obscure because the person who wanted to meet Paul had to search for me earnestly, Paul writes, and found me. See, Paul was in a dungeon that no one knew how to even find it. He had to search because there are 30 or 40 um, prisoners will be dumped into different cells and different dungeon pits. And here Paul is in one of them and he had to find it. It's an obscure place. Look at this in chapter 2 of verse 9. Paul is not only bound in chains, but he is bound like a criminal. In other words, he probably was chained to either a wall or he was chained to another criminal. And the Bible says, Paul uses a contrast, even in that verse in chapter 2 of verse 9, he says, but the word of God was not bound. Praise God. Now, not only that, in this place, Paul must have been very lonely. He was a lonely man. Look at this in chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, all who are in Asia turned away from me. In other words, they all deserted him. In chapter 4 of verse 11, he says, only Luke is with me. Remember Dr. Luke, who had a great practice in Thessalonica, who gave up his practice and followed Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys and became his personal physician. The Bible says only Luke, Dr. Luke, alone was with Paul. In verse 16 of chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, it says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Look at this experience. Here is Apostle Paul, who is a spiritual father. He's an apostle. He's the founder, and he's the, he's the founder of so many churches. He laid the foundation. He led so many people to Christ. Yet in his last days, he's shut up in a dungeon. And the Bible says, everyone who knows him deserted him, except Luke probably came every now and then. And the Bible says here at his first defense, that means when he stood before Pharaoh for the first time, no, uh, when he stood before Nero for the first time, that no one came to stand with him. Everyone deserted him. Now, listen to me carefully. This is a man who had loneliness as an issue. And no wonder he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, Timothy, I long to see you. You know, when you're reading scripture, you've got to imagine, the Bible says, you know, um, uh, Charles Spurgeon actually wrote to his uh, uh, students that are preachers. He says, you sanctified imagination when you're reading the scriptures. In other words, in this case, put a tonality, how, how Paul would have said it, in what tone he would have said, what tone he would have written this. And look at this. He says, I long to see you. And that is a man who is going through so much loneliness. So here he is in a prison, in a dungeon for not doing anything wrong, but treated as a criminal bound with chains. And it's an obscure place. But not only that, everyone that he knows deserted him. And now he says, I long to see you. So in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he writes in verse 9, Do your best to come to me, Timothy. Do your best to come to me. Come to me soon, he says. Now, why is this hurry? You know why this hurry? He asks him, 
to say in verse 21, look at what he says in verse 21 of chapter 4. He says, do your best to come before winter. Wow. Paul must have felt the cold, the chillness in that dungeon. Not only he is lonely, but he is also cold. And in that season, in that kind of lonely period, Paul pens this uh, letter. So when he says to Timothy, I long to see you, so come, do whatever you can do to come fast to see me. And then in verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, when you come, bring my coat. In other words, bring my coat that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and about all the parchments. He says, bring the books and bring the parchments because he wants to keep on writing to the churches. And here he says, bring my coat. What a personal letter from Apostle Paul. A man who served Christ wholeheartedly and in his last days is shut in a dungeon in Rome. And not only that, kind of he's experiencing a lockdown, but he's also lonely and he in a season where he is longing to see his spiritual son. Now, this is the kind of experience that Paul was going through in this letter. Now, the reason why he wrote this letter I want you to pay attention to this. Why did he write this letter? Because in this letter, you will never find him complain about his situation. In, because this is his final letter. He's not, gonna, he's not complaining about his life. He doesn't even consider his life as anything. He says, my life is already poured out. It's ready to be poured out. I finished my race. And this is where I want to give you a clue about great men of God. Let me give you an insight about great men of God. They live with a sense of mission. They live with a sense of mission that that expands beyond their own life. They are not driven by ambition. They are not driven by personal comfort or personal success or personal attainment. They 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 are driven by a sense of mission. There is a calling that they are driven by. And they are consumed by a bigger picture. And in this case, it is the cause of Jesus Christ. And in Paul's life, he lived for a cause. He lived for the cause of Jesus Christ. And here he writes his final letter to his spiritual son. And he lets him know that his work is complete. Paul's work is coming to an end. But the work of Jesus Christ will continue. It will carry on. And he believes that Timothy ought to carry that work. Not only Timothy ought to carry that work, that Timothy needs to also train a new generation of godly men who can continue that gospel work. And this is the heart of why Apostle Paul wrote 2 Timothy. Now he is writing to his spiritual son and he wants to raise the spiritual son to be a, to a person who succeeds him, carry on the work. So in almost like passing on the baton, he says, carry on this work. Now, when you study a book like 2 Timothy, there are several recurring themes. But so tonight I want to whet your appetite and I want to give you some interesting themes for study. And when you look at Timothy, on the other hand, when Timothy received this letter, Timothy was in Ephesus. He was pastoring a church. Now, we know a little bit about Timothy. Now, Timothy had some sort of stomach issues, the Bible says. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy to take a a sip of wine every night so that you feel better and get better. Now, not only that, Paul also writes in this 2 Timothy 
um, very specifically about certain things that Timothy must be going through. And uh, uh, maybe, maybe Timothy was a timid man. Many Bible scholars will tell you that Timothy might have been a timid man. That's why he writes to him a specific word to say, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, I want you to understand this. Paul is going through a very difficult circumstance in Rome. Persecution. And there are so many th- crises that he has to deal with. In the same manner, Timothy, who is head of the church in Ephesus, is also going through his own challenges. You know, Timothy, if, if you compare it to today's age, it is challenging in a secular society to stand for the gospel, to proclaim your biblical worldview. In the same manner, I believe Timothy would have faced his own challenges in that season. And therefore, Timothy, being a young leader in the, in the church world, would have encountered certain hesitation, certain timidity about himself, unsure of how to deal with certain things. So Paul, as a man of God, as a mature man of God, as a mentor in the faith, as a spiritual father, is writing a letter that, that gives him a kind of a compass so that he can navigate in his life what is fundamental and what is of great importance. I want you to listen to me carefully. One of the things that I find in this uh, Second Timothy is the way Paul addresses Timothy. And I see a progression in each chapter. See, there are only four chapters in Second Timothy. Now, each chapter, there is a, a, a term that I find that could speak to Timothy. For example, in the first chapter, Timothy is addressed as a beloved son. In verse 2, the Bible says, To Timothy, my beloved child. Look at the words of endearment. And in chapter 1, Timothy starts as a beloved child, a beloved son. In chapter 2, verse 1, he also continues to say, You, my child. In other words, he's saying, My son. Now, that is the starting point for all of us in our lives. As soon as we come to faith in Christ, we are the beloved child of God. We are the beloved son and daughter of the Most High God. We are loved by the Lord. And that's the beginning of our spiritual journey. But as I look at this in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, I see a progression that Paul charts for Timothy. And I find this very interesting because this will be similar to us in our own journey of life. We are called to grow towards spiritual maturity. We are not just called to just remain as a child. The Bible says, if anyone believe in Christ, he gives them the power to become a child of God. If you and I believe in Christ, you and I have have received the power to become children of God. You and I become children of God. But that's only the starting point. But God wants us to continue to mature and become spiritually mature until we are able to spiritually reproduce. And I find that in this in this search book, a little nuggets like that. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he addresses Timothy as beloved child, beloved son. But then in chapter 2, he talks to him as an approved worker. 
you know, do your best in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God rightly handling the word of truth. In other words, Paul says, don't just remain as a child, but now grow. Grow in what? Become a diligent worker, an approved worker. And what is an approved worker in this instance? Someone who knows how to rightly divide the word of God. Wonderful. Not only become a diligent worker, an approved worker. Look at the third progression. In chapter 3, verse 17. Paul writes and says, all scripture is God-breathed in verse 16, that it's profitable for life, profitable for training in righteousness. And then in verse 17, he says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here, he addresses Timothy, that Timothy should become a man of God that is complete. That means perfect. That means well-equipped. Equipped for what? For good work, for every good work that God has called him and placed upon his life as a calling. Wonderful. I see this progression. Number one, he was, chapter one was beloved son. Chapter two is an approved worker. Chapter three is a man of God. Look at this in chapter four. Chapter four and verse five. Verse five says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering or hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, fulfill the ministry that God has for you. And here in particular, he writes one of the fivefold office. He says, do the work of an evangelist. You know, when I put on the lens, I'm a mentor at heart and I journey. God has given me the great privilege of journeying with many senior pastors. And as I journey with them in our mentoring relationship, uh, one of my core things that I pray before the Lord is to help me understand and to recognize the office that they carry, the ministry that God has called them for, so that we, in part of our developmental plan, part of our coaching, part of our training, part of our mentoring is to help them to recognize it and to train themselves towards it so that they can walk in it. And here Paul charts a beautiful course. He says, you're a beloved son, but you've got to become an approved worker. And grow to be a man of God, fully equipped for every good work. And finally, in the fourth chapter, he says, discover and walk in your destiny. What is it? What's the call of God? To do the work of an evangelist. I see the maturing process. Now, I want to take a moment and I want to give yourself a moment to write down. Which stage are you in, in this season? What is God speaking to you? I believe I'm speaking to the children of the Most High God, the beloved who are precious in the eyes of God. Christ died for you. He redeemed you. He rescued you. Now, He not only saved you, the Bible says, He also called you with a higher calling, with a holy calling. And there is a calling for us to walk towards spiritual maturity. This is where, as a disciple-making pastor, I want to take a pause and take a look at what plagues the world today. See, many times we are looking at the outward calamities, but sometimes we don't really pay attention to the inward decay, the inner declension, the state of corruption in our soul, not only in the soul, but also in the church world. And can I humbly say this as a disciple-making pastor, there are two things that really gives me grief. Number one, there is a biblical illiteracy that plagues the church. 
Number two, there is a spiritual immaturity. In other words, that's an extended spiritual infancy that happens within the church. And the reason is because discipleship has been neglected. You know, as a disciple-making church and as a disciple-making movement, we call we are IDMC. What does IDMC stand for? I don't mind chocolates. No, no. IDMC stands for Intentional Disciple-Making Church. We are here to call churches back to their disciple-making roots. We are, as a church, we position, God has given us a mandate and a mission to call churches back to their disciple-making roots. We are here to call Christians back to their disciple-making roots. In other words, we got to come back to the fundamentals. We got to come back to the basics so that we can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And this is one of the core things that I believe Paul is addressing here. But also I find as a disciple-making pastor, the third thing that I, I find as a crisis, number one, I shared with you, it is the spiritual uh, biblical illiteracy. Secondly, it is spiritual immaturity. Thirdly, it is the neglect of training and raising the next generation. See, one of the things that I find is uh, that we, even, even in the Christendom today, there are a lot of uh, churches that are still have not identified and raised up the next generation intentionally so that they can be armor bearers, so that they can carry forward with the work of God. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. If you're a leader listening to me, the success of a leader, the success of a leader is seen in the leadership succession. That means there must be a successor that you have identified and trained and developed so that when the time comes, the next generation is able to rise up and lead. But sadly, many places, that is not the case. So this is where I see Apostle Paul writing with a heart towards discipleship writing towards with a heart for the next generation. He wants to lay hold of Timothy and he wants to impart to Timothy. He wants to spiritually influence Timothy and give him a blueprint so that he can navigate his life. Not only that, he's calling Timothy to live with a certain sense of calling that you become an approved worker, a diligent worker, grow to be a man of God and become a person who walks in his fivefold office and fulfill the ministry that God has for him. Praise God. Now, I want you to take a moment. You know, we are not just studying the scripture for the sake of just studying it. I want you to know how to apply this into our lives. Yeah? As a disciple-making church, our key focus is not just knowledge of the word of God, but application of the word of God. Yeah, we always say in this house, truth applied changes lives. Truth doesn't change life. Truth alone doesn't change life. But truth, when it's applied, changes lives. So we need to apply. I'm reminded of a story of a guy who went to the library to borrow a book. This is the guy who went to a library to borrow a book. A few days later, he returned and said to the librarian at the counter, this book was very boring. It had too many characters and too many numbers, so I would like to return this book. The librarian said to the other librarian, hey, good news, we have found the guy who took our phone book. 
I give you a moment to laugh. In other words, just because I don't want to just go through a futile exercise of reading something for the sake of reading. See, this is where I pray that you do whet your appetite. Every time we come together and we open the pages of Scripture, what I intend before God and what my prayer and my motivation is, that it will whet your appetite to go back to the Scriptures and with a sense of awe, with a sense of wonder, and to dig deep for pearls and treasures so that you can not only know the Word, but you also can apply the Word. Not only know the Word of God, but encounter the God of the Word. Now, 2 Timothy is a discipleship manual. Paul, in his last days, writes to his spiritual son and calls him to live a life of a disciple and a disciple maker. Now, I want to talk about how do I look at this whole book, 2 Timothy. I'm going to give you a tip. There are four key verbs, one per chapter, that will kind of give you a clue about the entire chapter. That will give you a, a, a clue to unlock each chapter. And I'm going to give you these four key verbs. These four words are this, God and trust continue and preach. Chapter one, it is the word God. Number two, chapter two, it's the word entrust. Chapter three, it is the word continue. And chapter four, it is the word preach. Now, these four words are the clues to unlock each chapter. But I want to give you one more tip. This is the 14-2-14-2 tip. It is the key called 14-2-14-2. What, what do I mean by 14-2-14-2? Chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 14. And chapter 4, verse 2. 14-2, <laughs> That will give you the key to unlock this entire book of 2 Timothy. Now, let's look at it. Number 1. When it comes to discipleship, as a disciple-making pastor, Paul is writing to his spiritual son and he gives him a final directive as a blueprint to navigate through the last days. And this is what he says. Number one, in chapter one, I can title this chapter one as the crisis of discipleship. The crisis of discipleship. Look at verse 14. The Bible says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Say that with me. Guard the good deposit. Guard the good deposit. In other words, uh, put. Uh, in other words, consider it precious and and take care of it, uh, protect it. What is guard the good deposit entrusted to you? That's the crisis of discipleship. Number two, the commitment to discipleship. The commitment to discipleship is the word from chapter two, verse two. What you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I want you to say that with me. Entrust to other faithful men. In other words, this is Paul writing and he says the commitment to discipleship is not only you guard the good deposit, but now entrust it to faithful men who is able to teach others also. That's chapter 2. That's the commitment to discipleship. Thirdly, it is the challenge for discipleship. What is the challenge for discipleship? Chapter 3 and verse 14. Chapter 3 verse 14 says, But for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. 
In other words, continue. The word there is abide, remain in what you have learned and firmly believed. In other words, guard it. Not only guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you, entrusted to faithful men. And now he says the challenge in discipleship is there will be challenging times. So in those challenging times, continue, press forward, continue and remain in what you have learned and firmly believed. And chapter four, it is the call in discipleship. Chapter four is the call in discipleship. What is the call in discipleship? Verse two, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul writes and he says, preach the word. I want you to take a moment and look at these four things. 14 to 14 to. First word is God. Number two, entrust. Number three, continue. And number four, it's preach. And he says, guard the word, entrust the word, continue in the word and preach the word. Now that is the book of 2 Timothy, my people. The book of 2 Timothy is found in these four key verbs and each verb will unlock each chapter. But I want to take a moment to look at it in detail, uh, step by step. Now, today's my, my heart's desire is to give you an overview and whet your appetite so that you can read this book, meditate in your quiet time and dig deeper in the pages of scripture. So the first one is the crisis of discipleship. And Paul's advice is guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Chapter 1 and verse 14. Now, why do we need to guard the word? You know why we need to guard the word? I want you to listen to me carefully. This is the reason why. Because many times people, they are not uh, careful. The Bible says if you don't have a vision, people perish. And people walk aimlessly. And that is how we are. Sometimes we lose sight of the vision, the mission that God has given us. And because we lose sight of it, we are careless. And when we are careless, we, we take for granted what God has given us, the good deposit that he has given us. We take it for granted and we lose it. Sometimes we are so distracted easily and people are prone to wander away. Sometimes we are so discouraged by the circumstances of life, we give up. But Paul writes and he says he knows how human be beings behave. He, sometimes they get tempted and they will give in to sin and they will walk in backslidden state. So Paul writes and he says, through the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says to them, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in within you, God the good deposited good deposit entrusted to you. Praise God. Hallelujah. Why do we need to do it? You know what? God redeemed you for a purpose. Don't forget that. God gave you a, dense, a destiny. He has called you for a, for a purpose and a plan of God. Now that plan and purpose is generational. I want you to think about this with me. Here in, in first chapter Paul actually writes and he says to Timothy, I'm reminded, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. You know, when he thinks about Timothy, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. 
that was in your grandmother and then in your mother and now it is in you. See, Timothy came from a family where the mother was Jew, but the father was Greek. And maybe the father was not even a believer in Christ, but the grandmother and mother was. But here in this instance, Paul, when he remembers Timothy, he says, I see that faith in you, that faith that was in your grandmother and the faith that was in your mother. And I see the same faith in you, Timothy. Right there, you get a picture of a generational faith, a legacy of faith. I want you to listen to me carefully, church. The reason why you and I need to guard the deposit that God has given us. We need to guard the word of God. Why? Because the future generation depends upon it. You and I, we need to recognize this generation. We are stewarding the truth so that we can transmit this truth to the next generation. And we are only one generation away from falling away. So make sure you guard the word of God. You guard the good deposit that God has given us. This is again an emphasis on discipleship. And in our church, we talk about this as not only personal discipleship and authentic discipleship to Jesus, but an intentional disciple making of the next generation, an intentional disciple making at home where the father, the mother takes responsibility to disciple their children. Why? We got to guard the good deposit that is given to us because we have a responsibility to transfer it to the next generation. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. Paul writes and he says, there is a sincere faith. I like that word, sincere faith. You know, in uh, Sydney, where I live, there is uh, a marketplace where you can go and you can actually pick up some fake goods at a cheaper price. Now, I like just uh, window browsing, uh, window shopping. I just go through and browse through the shops sometimes because my wife brings me to these shops and she will just go around. She will be zigzagging through the marketplace and and I would just stop someplace and just hang around. And, and sometimes I've noticed this. Imagine if you find a, a, a product. It, it almost looks so genuine. But you know it's fake. You know why you know it is fake? Because it is so cheap. And, even the, and, and when you look at it, uh, the workmanship is not that good, not that great. So you know it is a genuine fake. It is a genuine fake. You don't have to check with a shopkeeper. Hey, is this fake or what? Or fake or genuine? You don't have to. Why? Because you know it. It's a genuine fake. But you also know things that are genuine, genuine. I want you to listen to me carefully. Look at the difference. Genuine fake, you can easily identify. Genuine, genuine, you also know because it will be, it will be of a certain, the craftsmanship is so good, the workmanship is good, the quality of the product is really great and it's not cheap and you buy it from a reputable place. Genuine, genuine. But I tell you what, sometimes some things are so close to genuine, but it's not actually genuine. It's still fake. Now, this is what I call a fake genuine. It is the fake genuine. In other words, it almost looks like genuine, but it's actually fake. It's a fake genuine. So when it's a genuine fake, you can easily spot it. When it's a genuine genuine, you can easily spot it. But when it's a fake genuine, 
it's not easy to spot when it's a fake genuine. In other words, you pretend, it pretends to be genuine, but it's not genuine. Now, when Paul writes and he says to Timothy, his spiritual son, he says, you have a faith that is sincere. That word sinisera is the word for genuinity. You have a genuine faith and that genuine faith we should not lose. We should guard it. That's what Paul was saying. Why we need to guard that? Because, you know, in, uh, in um, George Barna, one of the men who uh, studies, uh, does church survey and very highly reputable um, person and institute, George Barna Institute, their result of a survey among Christians indicated a gradual change of spiritual temperature. Now, this they did in America and a rise in biblical illiteracy and a decline in discipleship. So one of the survey questions was, can you name, they were, uh, they were asking Christians, church-going Christians, can you name all the four Gospels? And people couldn't name it. And they asked, what is Sodom and Gomorrah? Some people thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And uh, they asked, who preached Sermon on the Mount? Many considered Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. And when they asked, which Bible, do you know whether this is in the Bible? God helps those who help themselves. Many said yes. And they even tried to give a Bible in a verse, a chapter in a verse. Now, this is because there's biblical illiteracy. In other words, we mouth words that we truly don't understand and we truly don't mean. I want you to think about this. This is the age of nominal Christianity. You know, many times you have heard me say this, but let me say this again. I find there are about three types of Christians in the world today. The first type is nominal Christian. Who is a nominal Christian? A nominal Christian is someone who is a cultural Christian. Cultural Christian is someone who says, I was born in a Christian family. I was given a Christian name. I went to a Christian school, so I must be a Christian. And their life has, has no difference to the world. It's, in other words, they, are, uh, they behave exactly like a pre-believer, like a heathen. That, that's a nominal Christian. Now, there are others who, are, who have confessed Jesus as their savior, who may have said the sinner's prayer in some prayer meeting and may have given and gotten even baptized, but their life still looks like the world. In other words, they are consumed with consumerism and worldliness. This is what you call a carnal Christian. So a cultural Christian and a carnal Christian are a normal, nominal Christian, a namesake Christian. But then there's a second type. They are the compromised Christian. Who is a compromised Christian? This is a person who gives a token Christian. In other words, they, they subscribe to a token Christianity. They, they go to church, they serve, they give, they do a little bit so that they have a culture of respectability. They are the ones who pretend and wear a spiritual mask. They wear a spiritual mask and they appear consistently that they are spiritual, but they are the ones, the Bible says, having the form of godliness, but denying the power. I want you to listen to me carefully. They're the compromised Christian. But the, the third type of Christian is a consecrated Christian. A consecrated Christian is someone who is, has a personal revival. They live in active obedience before God. They walk in genuine repentance. They walk in absolute surrender to Christ in their daily life. Now that is a consecrated Christian who have crucified their life 
with Christ and continue to carry the cross daily. Now, you and I, we need to take stock of our own faith. Is our faith genuine? Would people look at our lives and say, I see that same genuine, sincere faith in you. And you know, the secret to have that church is to have to guard the good deposit given to us. Guard the good deposit. Let the Holy Spirit help you. So how do I do that, Pastor? Can I humbly ask you to do this? Come back and give yourself completely to Christ. Walk in complete and true repentance. Deal with sin thoroughly. Don't, 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 don't allow areas of your life to be still away from the Lordship of Christ. Bring everything under the subjection of the Lordship of Christ. Bring everything and give everything back to Christ. And come with total repentance. You hear me say many times, when people are going through a crisis, they turn to Christ for help. But what you and I, we need to do is not just turn to Him, but return to Him. And how do you return to Him? You return to Him wholeheartedly. No plan B, no reservations. You come back and deal with sin thoroughly. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Now, this is important, church. Can I give you something to write down? The church in general is losing ground. Why do we need to guard the good deposit? Why is this such a serious message in these last days? I tell you why. Because the church in general is losing ground. What kind of ground are we losing? Let me give you three. One, we are losing the moral ground. We are losing on moral ground. How? We are losing the sense of clear moral compass. Our walk and our work is somehow disconnected. We say we are Christians, but yet in our life, there are, there are so many things that are so carnal, very earthly, sinful, that are fatal attractions of our heart, unworthy pursuits. We give ourselves to all these ungodly things that are idols that we haven't dealt with. So we are losing on moral ground. Secondly, we are losing on spiritual ground. Spiritual consumerism is plaguing the church. What is in it for me? People are always looking around for where they can get the next big thing. I want you to listen to me carefully. We're losing the spiritual ground. Number three, not only that, we are losing on biblical ground. What is it? Superstitions have come into the church. You know, when I visit India or places like Africa or places like some parts of Southeast Asia, there are superstitions that have come and plagued the church. That means they, they are no longer guided by a biblical worldview and a kingdom value system. But their value system are compromised where the cultural beliefs and cultural values and cultural thinking has penetrated the church. And therefore, there is a superstition and people are losing the biblical ground. I want you to think about this. Maybe in one of the future sessions, we may address this deeper. But I want you to think about the first one. There is a crisis of discipleship. As, as long as you don't see this crisis, you won't need, you won't need to change. But the moment you're gripped with it, you have to change. You can't unsee it. And I pray that you will see it. Paul recognizes that in the last days, this will be a need. So he tells Timothy, Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Hallelujah. And guard it by the Holy Spirit. Praise God. 
That's the crisis of discipleship. Number two, the commitment to discipleship. Entrust in chapter 2, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I love this. You know, if you're part of our church family, you would know that this is the key verse of discipleship that we often quote. That means here, Paul addresses not only Timothy as a disciple of Christ, but Timothy as a disciple maker for Christ. See, you and I, we need to recognize the product that we are called to produce in the church world is not just disciples of Christ. The product that we are supposed to produce is disciple makers for Christ. Who are disciple makers? These are disciples who make other disciples. So disciples who make disciples. That is how we are called. We are called to make disciples of all nations. Hallelujah. Beginning from our home. And here Paul writes with a clear sense of burden to, to Timothy. Guard the good deposit. Now take that deposit and entrust to faithful men. And I want you to think about the generations that Paul is talking about here. There are four generations listed in this one verse. The first verse, the first generation is Paul. And Paul is imparting to Timothy. And Paul, when he imparts to Timothy, Timothy is supposed to impart to, to faithful people. And then Timothy will not only impart to faithful people, and these faithful men and women, they will impart to others. How many generations did Paul write? Four generations. Don't forget this. The reason why he says this is because Paul being a Jewish um, rabbi, as a man who is trained in, in the Old Testament quite well, he understands that on the fourth generation, on the third generation, things can change. How, do you remember in the Old Testament? We always say God, God is the God of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three generations. It's always a generational thinking. David, after King David, was King Solomon. And after King Solomon, it was King Rehoboam. The, the kingdom split in the third generation. So if anything happens, it always happens on the third generation. That's why when you're working on a succession plan for leadership, you have to make sure that the succession plan lasts for three or four generations. Why? Because it can all go to waste on the third generation. As a student of church, a student of church growth, student as a student who, uh, as I've journeyed with so many pastors in diff leading different denominations and organizations, one thing I've seen, the third generation we have to pay attention to. Because in the third generation, you can completely lose it. And Paul here has something specific, I believe, in his mind. If not, as a disciple-making pastor, I have something specific I want to share with you. See, the Bible says Joshua, uh, at the end of conquering the entire promised land, the Bible says Joshua declares in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 31, the Bible says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And then look at this in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. The very next generation that rose, the Bible says, there arose another generation after Joshua's generation who did not know the Lord 
or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, listen to me carefully. How do you go from one generation, Moses' generation, they have seen the incredible power of God delivering them from Egypt. Joshua generation, the second generation, that has seen the mighty hand of God in delivering their enemies into their hands and taking possession of the promised land. The third generation, the Bible says, completely did not know God nor what he has done in Israel. This is what I would say. First generation knew God. They had a reality of faith. They had a conviction that leads to commitment. But the second generation, they knew about God. They had a routine of faith, a convenience that leads to carelessness. The third generation knew not God because they had rejection of faith, a compromise that leads to confusion. Listen to me carefully. First generation knew God. Second generation knew about God. Third generation knew not God. Why? I tell you why. Because the second generation, that's the Joshua generation, fought battles, were tired. They won the battle. They won all the promised land. They, they walked into all that God promised, but yet they failed to transit the truth to the next generation. That's why Paul had this in mind. And Paul says, Paul imparts to Timothy and Timothy must find faithful men who are able to teach others also. Now, this is fundamental. You and I need to pay attention to this because this is what God has given us as a mandate for the church, as a mission for the church. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations. And the most important generation that we need to impart and capture is the next generation. Hallelujah. So Paul writes here and he speaks specifically to Timothy and he says to Timothy, Timothy, make sure you don't just drift. Ministry is, uh, there's a lot of distractions in ministries because ministry is very busy. You know, I, as I journey with pastors, I normally tell them pastor's job is very difficult. If you're a leader in the church, it's a very difficult job because you wear so many different hats. You know, I, I, I usually say it like this, that you have to do uh, a pastor's job. It's like they have to do people work. There are some paperwork, there are some project work, and then they have to do platform work where they need to preach and teach. And on top of that, they also need to do philosophical work. In other words, think about things. Think about how to respond to situations that arise. So there's people work, paperwork, platform work, project work, philosophical work. But above all else, there's a preparation of heart work. There's a preparation of heart work. We have to do all this. So in the midst of all these things, that where we do we have time to walk with others in a disciple-making environment? But can I humbly say this? That is of great importance because everything else is secondary. The paying attention to the next generation imparting the truth, transiting the truth to the next generation is of great importance. No wonder Apostle Paul writes and he says, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. You know, one of the things I find in the body of Christ is sometimes when you look at churches, they're going through division. Sometimes workers are discouraged. There is discouragement. Sometimes when you look, look at the people's lives closely, there's defilement of sin. 
And then in general, there are deception. People think they're okay, but they're not really okay. So when you look at from a distance like that, there's deception in the church. There's division. There's discouragement. There is uh, defilement of sin. But can I humbly say this? All these things are an indicator of a deficit of discipleship. A deficit of discipleship. See, I'm a disciple-making pastor. God has given me a grace to actually be a teacher of the Word of God, to be a preacher of God's Word. And from a young age of 16, I started preaching. And I've stood in platforms all over the world. God has brought me to 30 different countries to preach in crusades and pastors' conferences and in many large churches and influential places. Now, in all these, I, I, I look forward to doing the will of God and bringing forth a word in season. Now, I love doing that. I don't stand on these platforms because I have to say something, but because I believe I have something to say. But at the same time, what I realized is that platform ministry, no matter how good it is that you can impart the word of God to people, the most important ministry, even more important than platform work where you preach the word of God to the masses, it is investing your life in a few key individuals. Listen to me carefully. Jesus spoke to the masses. He fed the 5,000. He preached to the 5,000s, the 10,000s. But when he came to journey, he took 12 men under his wings. And the Bible gives us a clue in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. He chose 12 that they might be with him, that he might teach them, that he might impart to them. He might then send them out to preach. Hallelujah. Jesus invested in his life in a few key individuals. That is the most important thing that you and I are called to do. Now, today, by the grace of God, I would say this humbly before God. The one thing I treasure in my life, in my ministry, is the people that God has given to Pastor Isa and myself to be able to journey together so that we can invest our life in a few good men and women of God. And that is what we treasure. And that is what I believe the heart of God is. Even Apostle Paul, he takes time to write this letter to his beloved son, Timothy. And he encourages him to say, entrust to faithful men who is able to teach others also. And in that process, he gives him pictures. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. The ministry is uh, a difficult place. And here Paul paints three beautiful pictures. He gives him a metaphor and he compares uh, and says to Timothy, look at Tim Timothy, look at the soldier, look at an athlete and look at a farmer. So he gives him three things for, for, for Timothy to consider. And these are, I believe, these are a marks of a disciple maker. Look at this, a soldier. Now, when you, when you look at a soldier, what do you, what do you see? A soldier, the Bible says here um, in verse 4 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. See, a soldier is purely dedicated for his work, for his country, for his king. And here the Bible says his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That means he doesn't pursue any other he doesn't get entangled in any other civilian pursuits. He's totally dedicated. In other words, it speaks of devotion. It speaks of dedication. 
The second picture is an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I love this. An athlete is someone who needs to uh, compete with the rules. Otherwise, he won't be able to win. So in a picture of an athlete, someone who's preparing for Olympics, Paul is writing from Rome. Maybe he's uh, hearing about the Olympics and he's writing about an athlete that's getting ready. And here he says, an athlete, that means them, an athlete is a picture of discipline, a life that is so filled with discipline. Not only dedication like a soldier, a devotion like a soldier, but also a devotion and a discipline of bringing your body to subjection, the food you need to avoid, sacrifices you have to make, a routine you have to keep, a disciplined lifestyle so that you can compete according to the rules and win. Now that is an athlete. But the third one, he says, is a hardworking farmer, verse 6, who ought to have first share of the crops. Now we all know a soldier speaks of dedication and devotion. An athlete speaks of discipline. And a farmer speaks of diligence. He's a hardworking farmer. It speaks of dedication and discipline and, and, and a picture of uh, 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 a, a complete diligence, a diligent worker. Now, I want you to pay attention to a subtlety here that Paul uses. When it came to soldier and athlete, and hardworking farmer, I want you to follow this principle. The principle is one of these things is not like the other. In other words, I want you to see the, the contrast that he brings in the verse. In the first one, he says, the soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In other words, you see the dedication of a soldier. For an athlete, you see he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In other words, an athlete stays disciplined. But when it comes to hardworking farmer, he's not talking specifically about the work that a farmer does or the attitude of a farmer, but rather that the farmer is the first one to share of the crops. In other words, he speaks about the reward. So soldier speaks of regimentation. Athlete speaks of rules and following discipline. But when it comes to farmer, there is a twist. He's not speaking about diligence or rigorous labor. Rather, he's speaking about reward. Regimentation, rules, but here it's about reward. What does it mean? He means this. I want you to catch this. He wants to highlight to Timothy. Timothy, give your life to serve Guard the good deposit. Give your life to entrust that deposit into other faithful men. And this is all worth it. How do I know it's worth it? Because you will be first like a farmer to receive the reward. Hallelujah. It is something that you and I, we need to catch. Secondly, in that same passage, he also highlights the need for Timothy to actually be a well-trained a diligent, approved worker who rightly divides the word. Why? Because you can't entrust to someone what you don't have. We are not here to make disciples with our human opinion. We are here to make disciples centered upon the word of God. I want you to catch this picture. 
Paul is very particular and he says, you and I, we need to be anchored in the scriptures. We need to guard the good deposit. Now entrust to others. How can you entrust to others if you don't have it in your own life? So therefore, pay attention to building your life upon the word of God. So look at it, verse 15 of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Hallelujah. You know, I, you have heard me say this. We need to master the word of God. You and I, we are people of the book. We are people who are ruled by one book. We read one book. And we allow the one book to read us. We master the one book and we allow the one book to master us. We are people of the word. But can I humbly say this? What Paul is saying here is not just that you master the word of God. So, so, so even if you, if you master the word of God, I have mastered the Hebrew, the Greek and the nuances, how to study in depth. Can I humbly say it still comes to nothing. Matters. What matters most is not you mastering the word of God, but allowing the word of God to master you. Now, I'm not neglecting study. I love study of scriptures. There are times when I open the pages of scriptures in the morning and I'm, I, I forget. Uh, time flies and I just want to be in God's presence studying and consuming the scriptures. Now, it is why do we do that? It is because not necessarily just to master the word of God, but we want the word of God to master our lives. That is the most important thing, church. Now, my prayer is that as we study the scriptures together, that God gives you grace to become an approved worker, fall in love with the scriptures and allow the scriptures, not only you read the scriptures, but allow the scriptures to read your life. And as you see your own life in light of the scriptures, that there will be true repentance and an absolute surrender and a complete renewal in your life. Hallelujah. Praise God. And the Bible says, this is the reason why he says, entrust, guard the good deposit, entrust the deposit into others. Praise God. Third one, the challenge for discipleship. Chapter 3 and verse 14 the Bible says in chapter 3 and verse 14, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. Now, chapter 3, he says, continue in the word. This is the challenge for discipleship. And in this context of chapter 3, he says that difficult times will come. And these difficult times is not so much. He doesn't address like Luke chapter 24 or Matthew chapter 24. He doesn't address the uh, calamities that will happen to the world outwardly, but rather he focuses on the inward corruption that will take place in the last days. And as a disciple making church, I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to recognize what are some of the challenges we will face in the last days. Look at this. The first one he says, Verse 1, understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. Because, verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, 
unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, what a description of the inner condition of their heart. What does it mean? In the last days, people will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. In other words, people will be so self-centered in their life that they will not be God-centered. They will not give their, any thought to God, but rather self-satisfaction, self-absorbed and very much self-seeking. And everything is about self-centered lifestyle. That's what it is that he's saying. And as he says this, he says in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, chapter 3 verse 5 says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They will have the form, but no substance. They will have the, out, they are the, they are the fake genuine. <laughs> they are the genuine fake. They have a form on the outside, but no substance. They have appearance of godliness, but they don't have any power. So what is Paul recommending Timothy to, should do? He says here very clearly in verse 5, avoid such people. Listen to me carefully. Paul gives a clue. How do you deal with in last days? In the last days, there will be people whom you should avoid. And the people whom you avoid are difficult and depraved people. Now, these are people who are hell-bent. They are bent on going. Uh, they are bent on rejecting Christ. Not the true seekers. There are people who seek what God has to offer. There are people who turn to God. But there are people who will be very difficult and depraved people. And he says, you've got you to gotta make sure that you avoid such people. But then he ca carries on to say, what type of guys these guys are. These are the ones in verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and they capture weak women burdened with sins and lead astray by various passions and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Now, he gives a description of who are these people that you need to avoid. These are the people who creep into households and they have a form but no substance. They have form of godliness but no power. But why, why, why they pretend to be like this? So that they can exercise control. Look at that. They capture weak women. And that's the reason why the Bible says they capture weak women is because back in those days, women may not have had the education and they didn't have the education to, to know what the scripture says and all that. So these men go in and corrupt them and 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 yeah, capture them, and they are weak women, the Bible says. But you and I, we need to recognize. If they have the form of godliness, but deny its power, avoid such people. Then, he goes on to say, he gives, Paul gives his own life as an example. Look at this in verse 10. Now here he says, these are the people who you continue with. These are the people who you continue in the faith. For you to journey in faith, you need like-minded people. You need a mentor. You need someone whom you can follow. You need, you need people to invest in your life and to keep yourself accountable. And you need to follow. Uh, in other words, you, you learn from some people. You have a learning agreement with a group of people. 
There is a there is a joint partnership. There is a spiritual accountability. Look at this. He says, avoid certain people. Now he says, continue. And these are the people who with whom you continue. They are distinctive and they are devoted people. Look at this. Verse 10 says, you, however, have followed my teaching. You, however, when he says to Timothy, it was an, he was, it was an he was placing an emphasis on Timothy. Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You know, all the things he listed in verse 10 are all attributes that are inside a person's heart. Character of a person. Look at this. My teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. That means my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And then verse 11 says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch. I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so what he continues to say to Timothy is, Timothy, avoid people that are depraved and make sure you're journeying with people who are distinct and who are devoted. Follow their example. Journey together in life. And then he carries on to say in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned. This is the key part. Challenging time comes. Don't get discouraged. Don't get disheartened. Don't get disillusioned. Don't get, uh, don't get distracted. Come to a place where you are firmly anchored in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. And the reason you can anchor yourself and continue is because you know from whom you have learned these things and you know what you have learned. Look at this. Verse 15 says, How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And the most important thing that you follow is not a human opinion. It's not an, uh, a man's teaching, but you come to follow the word of God. Look at this in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I want to take a moment just to ask you this. How is your time in the word of God? See, I didn't ask you, how is your quiet time? Because I know many times our quiet times are really quiet. I'm not asking, how is your quiet time? I didn't even ask you, how is your devotional life? I'm asking you, how is your time in the word of God? When you and I are supposed to be people of the word, we are given a good deposit. We need to guard it. So are we guarding it? Why do we need to guard it? Because we need to deposit. We need to entrust it to the next generation. Therefore, guard it because there is a future there's a future generation that depends on you guarding the truth. Hallelujah. Secondly, he says, entrust it to faithful men. You also become an approved worker. Learn how to study the scriptures and fall in love with it. And not only that, live your life on it. And now he says in chapter 3, difficult times will come. But you know what you need to do, Timothy? Avoid such people who are depraved 
and who are difficult people, who have a form of godliness but no substance, but then follow faithful people, continue with the faithful people, people who are distinct and devoted to Christ, and follow their example. Not only that, now you continue to study the word of God. Continue in the word that has been given to you. Now when you do that, you will continue to become a man of God, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hallelujah. Now, I want to ask you this. Are you equipped for the difficult times? Do you know in these difficult times, the reason why we started doing this Thursday night Bible study? Because it is important for us to anchor ourselves in the Word of God. People, in the last days, everything will fail. Only one thing that will never fail is the Word of God. When you and I build our life upon the Word of God, we will be like that wise man who knows the Word and applies the Word. And therefore, as a result, when the storms of life come, when the tsunami of life comes, when the pandemic uh, explosive explosions come, when, when all these things, scenarios come in the world, that you are not overwhelmed, but you're able to withstand because you're building your life upon the solid Word of God. Hallelujah. Shall we give the Lord a clap offering? Come on. Hallelujah. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Praise God. The one of the core things that I want to end by saying here is this, the fourth one. He goes on to the call in discipleship. The call in discipleship is chapter 4 and verse 2. Preach the word in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. See, Paul's charge to Timothy was preach the word of God. Hallelujah. And this is a solemn charge. The reason why he gives him is because he wants to understand the seriousness. You know how he wants to emphasize the seriousness? Look at verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, he says, I charge you in the presence of Christ and God. I charge you. In other words, this is a serious charge. That you need to preach the word to others. Now, it is not just a serious charge, but it's also an urgent charge. Why? Because he says, by his appearing in verse 1, Christ Jesus will come back again very soon. And when he appears, he will come as the judge of the living and the dead. Listen to me carefully. Christ appeared once. He came first time as the savior of the world. To die for the sin of mankind. The second time he comes, he comes as the judge of the living and the dead. In other words, at that appearing, he will establish his kingdom on earth. And that is what you and I are eagerly waiting for. Hallelujah. Now, that's why his appearing is so near. Now, how much more you and I have to take this to heart? The appearing of the Lord was near more than ever because we are living in the last leg of the last days. So this is an urgent charge. Preach the word. Then this is also an all seasons charge. He says, preach the word to in, in season, out of season. In other words, be ready. Now, when it comes to this, you and I, we need to understand that this is not just talking to Timothy as a preacher, as a teacher of the word of God. 
This applies to every single person. So you may say, Pastor, I'm only a housewife. I'm only a, I'm only a, a doctor or a teacher or a pilot. I, I'm not a preacher. I don't stand behind a pulpit to preach the word. How does this apply to you? You know, you preach through your life. You preach through your witnessing. You preach through the way you live your life in a godly manner. You know, I, wanna, I, re, I remind myself of the time when, when uh, Jesus healed a, a, a man who was possessed of demons. When Jesus delivered him, this is what the Bible says in Luke chapter 8 and verse 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home. And listen to this carefully. Jesus says to this man, return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done for him. Hallelujah. That is what it means to preach the word. You are someone who has been delivered by Christ. You are someone who has been rescued by Christ. You have tasted the goodness of God through the work on the cross of Calvary, through the work of Jesus Christ. Now you have a testimony to tell. You have a message to preach. And this is what it is. You go throughout the whole city and tell others how much Jesus has done. That means go back to your home. Tell your family members. Go back to your relatives' home. Tell them how much he has done for you. Go to your neighborhood. Tell them how much he has done for you. Go to your marketplace, wherever your workplace is, and tell them, declare how much Jesus has done for you. Now that anyone and everyone can do. And that is why this is an all seasons charge. This is a charge for each and every one of us. But I tell you why this is a much needed charge. You know why this is so needed today? Because the Bible says in verse 3 of chapter 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching years, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Last days, people will have itching years. They cannot take sound doctrine. They don't want to hear certain messages, so they accumulate for themselves teachers who give them what they want to hear. And the Bible says they will not endure sound teaching. So this is the reason why you and I, we need to take this on board. We need to guard the truth. We need to entrust the truth to faithful people who are able to teach others also. And we should be like the soldier. We should be like the athlete. And we should be like the farmer. Because knowing that there's going to be a great reward. Hallelujah. We make ourselves to be an approved worker. Diligently studying the scriptures to know how to rightly divide the word. And we need to continue in the word. In the midst of all the challenging times, the challenges that will come in the last days, we stand firm uh, in, the, in the word of God because the word of God is profitable. Can I humbly say this, church? We also take the charge to go and preach the word of God to others. Through our lives, we need to share the testimony. Praise God. Now, as I bring this whole message to a close, I want to give you one more nugget that I find in 2 Timothy that is very interesting. See, this is a personal letter written by the apostle to his spiritual son, Timothy. And because this was written to a personal um, disciple of Paul, he writes certain things 
that he may not otherwise have written. But I'm sure he wrote this under the, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives us a an clue of certain things that were going on in Paul as he thinks about his life in his last days. One of the nuggets I want to give you is in 2 Timothy, one of the unique characteristics of Paul's writing here is this. In each chapter, he mentions two names. Overall, in this book, there are about 25 names given. But specifically for each chapter, he gives two names and uses them as an example of what should be avoided. In other words, he uses these two names as negative examples. And I want to just highlight this quickly because this is of great importance for us. Look at this. Firstly, he says in chapter 1 and verse 15, he says this, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Homo Hermogenes. He mentions two names and he says these two men, especially, they turned away from me. In other words, they turned away. They were ashamed of Paul because Paul was in prison. They were ashamed of Paul. So in first chapter, you can take that two names and what Paul, the example that Paul uses to also communicate what Paul is trying to say to Timothy. He's saying to Timothy, do not be ashamed of me. Do not be ashamed of the gospel worker. Do not be ashamed of associating with, with the Paul because he's in prison. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Continue. Guard it. Guard it. Do not turn away from it. That's the first one. The second one. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and verses 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. The word for cancer. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And these two names he gives who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. See, these two names he mentions in chapter 2, he says, they are taking people away from the truth. In other words, they are straying away from the truth and they are also leading others away from the truth by giving them a false, to uh, a lie to believe, which is the resurrection has already happened. Now, in that context of chapter 2, Paul is saying, don't be like them who stray people away from the truth. So know how to rightly divide the word of truth and entrust it to faithful people so they will also follow. Hallelujah. Can you see the picture? The third chapter, he gives two names. And the third chapter, verse 8, the two names are Janus and Jambres, opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. I want you to listen to me carefully. Never in the Old Testament is these two names mentioned. These are the two names uh, they were in Pharaoh's court when Moses came with a commission from the Lord to, 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 to Pharaoh and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And there are, the Bible says there are two magicians here. The magicians' names are mentioned only in the New Testament. Where did Paul get this? Paul must have got it from the writings um, in the Old Testament days. Uh, from, um, but here he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these two names. And he says, these two men opposed Moses and not they opposed Moses because they were corrupted in their mind and they disqualified themselves regarding the faith now listen to me carefully that's the warning to Timothy therefore what do what should Timothy do he should risk he should not resist the truth 
but rather he should continue in the truth. He should labor hard to continue in the truth so that he can not, so he can keep his mind gainfully occupied, corrected by the truth, rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. Remember that. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. So the man of God will be equipped and become complete for every good work. Hallelujah. So he mentions two names. Finally, in the fourth chapter, there are two names mentioned. In verse 10, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is a happening place. So Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. How sad it is. Demas is actually mentioned in the book of Acts as someone who followed faithfully with Paul, serving together with Paul. But in the end, Demas fell in love with the world and with the present world, he says, and he deserted Paul. So what is it? In the fourth chapter, Paul gives a warning to Timothy. Don't love the present world, but rather don't get distracted by the present world. There's a world that is coming up. So for that, you need to preach the word. So don't get distracted. Don't quit your ministry halfway. But rather, in verse 5, he says, fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill the ministry. Don't be like Demas. What's the second name in chapter 4? The second name is in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm. Apostle Paul, right towards the end of his life, pens this. He says, this man, Alexander the coppersmith, did great harm to me. I believe he was a non-believer. He was a pre-believer. And he opposed Paul's um, teaching. And, and maybe he's the one who came and gave false witness against uh, Paul in the court. And that's why Paul is in prison. Maybe. That's why Paul writes here, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Paul writes here, Timothy, you will face persecution. You will face opposition, but stay strong. Preach the word. Fulfill the ministry that God has for you. I want to just read that one verse again. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. Verse 5 says, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. What is sober-minded? That you are able to grasp what's going on. What is essential, what is non-essential, what is loving, what is unloving, what is good, what is not good, what is kind, all those things. You are sober-minded to be able to judge rightly. Secondly, endure hardship. Don't give up. Don't be surprised when hardship comes. Endure it. Learn to endure it. Number three, do the work of an evangelist. In other words, discover your calling and walk in it. Fulfill your fivefold office, the gifting, the calling that God has given you. Number five, fulfill your ministry. Hallelujah. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, you need to fulfill the ministry. That was a little nugget that I thought you should know. There are two names mentioned in each chapter and each of them gives you an indication of what Paul is trying to help Timothy catch from his writings. Now, let me summarize everything. And in this summary, the first thing I want to pay attention to is there's a journey for spiritual maturity. First chapter, Timothy is addressed as a beloved son. Second chapter, he needs to become an approved worker. Third chapter, it's written as a man of God, equipped for every good work. Chapter four, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry.
There is a journey towards spiritual maturity. The second thing is when you do the overview of 2 Timothy, I want you to follow this 14.2, 14.2 principle. What is 14.2, 14.2? Chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 14. And chapter 4 and verse 2. That will help you unlock the entire book of 2 Timothy. So the crisis of discipleship. Guard the truth that's given to you. Number two, the commitment to discipleship. Entrust the truth to faithful men. Praise God. Number three, the challenge for discipleship. Continue in the word of God. Because then you will, it is profitable for all in every stage of life. It is profitable to know the word of God and to anchor yourself in the word of God. Number four, the call in discipleship is to preach the word of God. So learn to preach in season, out of season. Now, as I bring this message to a close, I want to end with this promise. The reason Paul had that confidence. See, Paul is in dungeon, facing persecution. And after this letter was written, he was executed. He died the death of a martyr. His head was chopped in that same prison cell, in that dungeon where he was, where he was penning this letter. And I want you to think about this. There is no iota of, uh, oh, I'm so discomforted here. Why am I here? There was no questions. But rather, he's writing with such a serious message. He wants to impart and he wants to edify. He wants to encourage. He wants to inspire Timothy to rise up and to disciple others. And you know what Paul writes about himself? He writes towards the end of chapter 4. And I want you to read a few verses. Look at the state of Paul. In verse 16, he says in chapter 4, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Maybe may it not be charged against them. But verse 17, this is what I want to end with. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to listen to me carefully, church. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, Paul says. So that there is a reason why even if everyone deserts you and you're alone in the season of lockdown, in the season of self-isolation, you're alone. Can I humbly say this? You're not alone. The Lord will stand with you and strengthen you. Why? So that is the reason why. There's a purpose. What's the purpose? So that the message might be fully proclaimed. Why God saves you? Why God delivers you? Why God protects you? Why God provides for you? So that the message of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, might be fully proclaimed in you and through your life. Hallelujah. And all the Gentiles might hear it. In other words, that's the destiny. That's the calling for Paul. And God will fulfill that calling. That means you won't die ahead of your time. You would not die before you have done the will of God. So be strong. The Lord stood with him. The Lord strengthened him so that the message will be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. Not only that, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth, from the mouth of Nero, from the hand of Nero. God plucked Paul out and kept him safe. 
Why? Because there is still work to be done. But the time will come when Paul will lay down his life. And look at this. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom. In other words, Paul knows for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When he closes his eyes here, he opens his eyes in the presence of God and he will be with his eternal father in the heavenly kingdom with his precious Lord and Savior Jesus. Hallelujah. That's why as a people of God, we should not be afraid of what is out there. You and I have an eternal hope. We have an everlasting hope. You and I have something where you are set, you are set your heart on the word of God. Now, I want to end by saying this. You are in quarantine. You know, quarantine is a French word for 40. 40 days they kept the people away from others uh, during the Black Death Plague. That's why it's called quarantine. It's a French word for 40. In other words, for 40 days, you and I are isolated. Now, what the 40 symbolizes in the Bible is it signifies change. It signifies that there is something that Jesus did. Jesus went and fasted for 40 days. You know, 40 days Moses spent with God in Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. I want you to listen to me. 40 days it rained and Noah was inside the ark. 40 days is significant in the Bible. 40 years they spend in the wilderness and God provided them with manna. See, 40 is the word for quarantine. And this quarantine is a season for you. God has given by his grace to anchor yourself in the word of God. So can I humbly say this? Root yourself, anchor yourself in the word of God. Because the word of God is profitable for all ages, for all stages of life. And for every season of our life. And when we have anchored ourselves in the word of God. And we have the God of the word by our side. We can have this assurance. That no matter what happens. We can be rested. And we can be fulfilling the ministry that God has for us. So let me finish by saying this. What Paul wrote to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. You then my child. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So let the grace of God strengthen you, church. God bless you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful privilege that we can open the pages of Scripture, meditate and reflect upon our own life. I pray, mighty God, that you give us grace to take stock of what we have heard today and to examine our own life in light of the Scriptures and as a result, give ourselves totally to you. Father, help us to repent completely, repent totally and give ourselves in an absolute surrender to you. And not only that, give us grace, mighty God, to guard the truth that has been entrusted to us. Help us, mighty God, to entrust the truth that we have received to faithful men. Help us to invest our life in a few key individuals, starting in our home life. If we are parents, help us to disciple our own children. If I'm, help us to disciple our spouse. Help us to disciple the people whom you have brought into our world. And Lord, help us to entrust this truth into faithful people. And mighty God, help us to continue in the word of God. That we will be people of the word. We will be anchored in the word of God. We will master the word of God and we will allow the word of God to master our lives. And not only that, Father, give us grace to be preachers of the word. 
that we will share boldly, knowing that the time is short, that we will share the word of God, the testimony of what God has done in our lives to others, to our neighbors, to the nations around us. Father, we thank you. We commit everything in your loving hands. Thank you for this privilege. I give you all the glory, the praise, and the honor. And I entrust each and everyone in your loving hands. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, Amen and Amen. God bless you. We will see you again next week. God bless you. We are so glad that you could join us online this week. I humbly request you to leave a comment. Tell us what spoke to you from the sermon today. If the Lord had ministered to you, or even if you have a prayer need, just write to us in the comment section and our team will follow up with you. We would like to highlight there is a particular web page for us to gather information. I would like you to visit connect.idmc.com.au and in that place, you could enter your details so that we can stay in touch. Not only that, it will also navigate for you all the other options you have, the next steps you can take in your discipleship journey. And we love for you to stay in touch with us. The best way to do it is to subscribe to our YouTube channel and like us on our Facebook page so that you can remain connected and you will get all the timely messages that comes from this pulpit. We love you. God bless you. We look forward to having you again with us. God bless.